There's a small but still sizable group of people who are choosing not to vaccinate their children. Here in L.A., there are schools in which 20% of the students aren't vaccinated because uh, parents here are more scared of gluten than they are of smallpox. <laughs> and as a result, we now have measles again. We've got measles. I want to say something about it. I know if you're one of these anti-vaccine people, you probably aren't going to take medical advice from a talk show host, and I don't expect you to. I wouldn't either. But I would expect you to take medical advice from almost every doctor in the world. <laughs> See, the thing about doctors is they didn't learn about the human body from their friend's Facebook page. They went to medical school where they studied all sorts of amazing things like how to magically prevent children from contracting horrible diseases. Some people do not buy into that because they did a Google search and Jenny McCarthy popped up and she had clothes on. So they listened to what she had to say and decided not to vaccinate their kid. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. Jimmy Kimmel was spot on, but the audience isn't laughing anymore. Measles outbreaks in California will seem benign compared to what awaits us if ill-informed anti-vaxxers are allowed to corrupt the public conversation while the biotech community works overtime to deliver a vaccine for COVID-19. And we will, hopefully sometime next year. The last time we faced a comparable public health threat, I was in elementary school. I'll never forget standing in a single file line with my classmates, waiting my turn to take the polio vaccine. It was a sugar cube, and we all stood in line with our tongues out, waiting for the nurse to put it into our mouth. At the epidemic's peak in 1952, more than 57,000 U.S. cases were reported. More than 21,000 people were paralyzed. More than 3,000 people died in a single year. Each summer brought new outbreaks and waves of public panic. The fear was palpable, just like it is now. Families avoided beaches and movie theaters because of transmission fears. Parents were desperate to inoculate their kids. Of course, as we all know, the polio vaccine worked, and it worked spectacularly. More than 16 million people were spared paralysis, according to the World Health Organization. A million and a half lives were saved. In point of fact, vaccines are among the most studied and proven public health interventions of the last century. The CDC reports that routine childhood vaccinations prevented 732,000 early deaths over two decades. The most insidious anti-vaxxer myth is that vaccines can cause autism. As Jimmy Kimmel noted, an MTV dating game show host named Jenny McCarthy pushed this lunacy, using her celebrity to become the poster child for the anti-vaccine movement. Way too many citizens of our pop culture nation started taking her advice over their doctors. 
The conspiracy theory first got legs back in the 90s, when the Lancelet, a British medical journal, published a study suggesting a link between autism and the vaccine that protects our kids from measles, mumps, and rubella. The Lancelet editors soon discovered that supporting data had been fabricated out of whole cloth. They issued a retraction and called the published findings, and I quote, utterly false. The doctor who authored the study had his medical license revoked in the United Kingdom. But as the saying goes, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is putting on its shoes. It's a story worth remembering right now. Because biotechnology is going to deliver a vaccine for COVID-19 that meets the FDA gold standard for safety and efficacy. We're going to end this nightmare. On today's episode, I'm going to talk vaccine education with BIO's Head of Infectious Disease Policy. We want to make sure that you, the people you love, and everyone who values human life, takes the shot. A responsible science-based dialogue on vaccine safety must begin now. Because this is a global pandemic, and none of us is safe until all of us are safe. I am so happy to have as my guest today, Phyllis Arthur. Phyllis Arthur is BIO's Vice President of Infectious Diseases and Diagnostics Policy. She's very smart. She went to got her MBA at Wharton. She was at Brookings, and then she was at Merck. And one of the things that Phyllis did at Merck was launch Gardasil. Thanks for being with us, Phyllis. Thank you, Jim. This is a great opportunity. Interesting time we're living in, that's for sure. Indeed. So actually, just real quickly, tell me, tell us about the, your Gardasil experience, oh, because that sounds fascinating. I learned so much, because you really were teaching a lot of different kinds of providers and, and thought leaders about a virus that could cause a cancer. And although we had, you know, all talked about hepatitis B in the past, which could over timely deliver cancer, this was very different. This was really uh, a cancer that was directly linked to an infection with a, with a virus. And, um, and so we were teaching pediatricians about the fact that that could exist. We were teaching oncologists about the fact that you could give a vaccine to prevent it. Um, and, and we were really teaching the American people and the people of the world that you could actually get a vaccine that could keep your son or daughter from going on to have very serious and horrible consequences of a viral infection. And I don't think people had ever thought of that before. So it was amazing. It was the first time I ever worked on a vaccine that was so complicated and multi-sectoral and globally important. It was a great time to be at Merck and a fantastic product to work on. And of course, despite the fact that that uh, vaccines have saved millions and millions and millions of lives and continue to do so every year, you can never get around a vaccine without some sort of controversy. So with Gardasil, it was the whole idea of, well, at what age do you make this vaccine available? Is it going to... uh, encourage young people to be sexually active before they should, right? I remember so that. Confront all of that, <laughs> exactly. right? Exactly. It was, it was so interesting because the whole idea of vaccines always, no matter what the vaccine is, is to give it to people before their time of exposure. So you give measles vaccine and, the, you know, when a kid is one or two years old, because then you keep them from getting exposed to measles later when it could be much more serious. It's same for this. You want to give Gardasil 
early in their lives when they're young teenagers before they go out and have any experiences that could lead them to get the infection. You don't want to wait till it's too late and you don't know when it's going to be. So it was interesting kind of trying to explain to people the kid, when you give it to them at nine or 10, you don't even have to talk about sexual activity. You can just say, this is to prevent your child from getting cancer 10, 15 years from now. Full stop. Um, But you really had to get people through that. You know, people were not comfortable at first. And we just worked through it uh, with education and lots of discussions and lots of thought leaders because people did make that kind of weird association. Um, And that's not really what it's about. It's about preventing the infection before you do anything else with your life. So then we at Bio were fortunate enough to have you come and join our staff. It's been about 10 years or so, something it's, like it's that? It's 11 years. I can't believe it. It's, it's been fantastic. I've learned a lot while I've been here. And so you've dealt with issues like the economics of research and development on vaccines, right? Because, Absolutely. Um, just give us a minute on that because that's, you know, they're not really a huge moneymaker, right? No, definitely not. I mean, the vaccines are, are a global product. You want to make sure they're available to everyone. They're very much, you know, a core tenant of the public health environment. So these are not, these are not even a blockbuster like Gardasil or like uh, Prevnar. Um, these are still not the giant products within the portfolio of any of our member companies, but they really leverage the most novel technology and they really work best when you give them to everyone who's appropriate to get them around the world. I mean, you're really trying to stop transmission of an infection. So so these are products that are, are expensive to make. Um, you have to research them in lots and lots of people because you're going to give them to healthy, healthy people, sometimes healthy babies, healthy teenagers, healthy adults, um, delicate immunocompromised seniors. And you need to be able to know that you're not going to cause any harm. So it's really important to do big studies You need to build big manufacturing facilities uh, because you want to supply a lot of doses to a lot of people. Um, But you also need to to make sure that there's great access and affordability for everyone who should get them. So they're a big investment, um, but they're not a product that one would consider to be some, you know, some huge multi-billion dollar thing. Um, Blockbuster. Yeah, blockbuster, exactly. it's, It's a more modest product. But it's a commitment that a lot of our companies have made because they are such a fundamental part of global public health. And then, of course, we have the anti-vaxxer group <laughs> That's true. Uh, uh, with whom you have to deal. Who, uh, um, When you said that you, you know, they're going to make sure they don't harm anybody, even when they don't harm anybody, you've got a lot of folks out there who, uh, um, without doing their homework, feel otherwise. And I think it's going to be extraordinarily interesting to see how many of the anti-vaxxers decide that they don't want the corona vaccine when it comes along. Exactly. I mean, this is a vaccine that that could be it could be something that we need to give every year. We don't know yet, but when we better understand how this virus either comes and goes or stays forever um, and becomes a part of our everyday lives, um, we'll know. And the vaccines will be researched as rigorously as they've always been, uh, and they'll be followed for safety for forever. I mean, th- that's what we'll do, and we'll really get a good understanding of who should get immunized and how well it's working um, over time. And it is interesting. I'm already seeing a little bit in the press 
press from some of the, you know, the anti-vaccine community about, I'm not getting that. And it's like, well, how do you know? You know, look at the data, follow the data. I, I think that what's really interesting is the denominator for vaccines, how many, you know, we give millions and millions of doses of vaccines every single year, the entire birth cohort, 4 million American babies born, you know, and we have very, very, very few side effects. Sort of, you know, most common ones are as pain in the arm, a little, a little light fever, but there are definitely, there are side effects that can occur, but the incidence of those is actually very low. And the systems are built to make sure that those few that have any side effects are taken care of because this is an important, important endeavor. We don't, we don't want to do harm, but we want people to make a good informed decision and know the risk. And for almost all the vaccines given today, the risk is actually very low. Give me the pain in the arm and keep your ventilator, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Give me the pain in the arm and keep all the ventilator, the pneumonia. The um, I actually have, uh, we have a, a consultant we're working with right now who's working with us on vaccine things. And we were on a Zoom conference just this week, and he's been sitting at home quarantined for 10 days because he got coronavirus. Um, he got diagnosed just eight or 10 days ago. He got it in the grocery store, unfortunately, his doctor thinks. And he was saying, even though he's having a mild case, he's still working. He said, it's like if you were breathing in ash every single day, every hour. You know, his description of how it feels because your lungs are just inflamed and they've got all that tissue. And so even though he's doing pretty well, he's not in the hospital, he's recovering at home. He said that the fever and the and the that weird feeling of trying to get air in is is extraordinarily unusual and disconcerting, and he's really ready for it to be over. And it's and along and along comes COVID. Along comes COVID nineteen. And despite the fact that some very famous people or person um, likes to say things like nobody had any idea that this could happen, you and I have been working together since twenty fourteen on the by. Bi- Partisan Biodefense Commission, or Bio- Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. And of course, we issued our first report in October of 2015, and which in which we said, not a question of if there will be a global pandemic, it's a question of when. And we issued all kinds of terrific recommendations as to how to prepare in every way possible uh, for the pandemic. And unfortunately, um, the federal response was too little, too late. Completely true. Uh, it, it, it's frustrating because, and, and you, the bipartisan commission said it, you said it, Senator Daschle, Senator Lieberman, and people like Bill Gates have said it. I mean, people have been saying, we're not ready. Uh, the World Bank, you know, lots of smart people have been saying, we need to build this infrastructure Literally the same way that you would put my missiles in silos. I mean, it's it's the same idea, right? You, you hope to never use this stuff, but you need to have the capacity to build it and then continue to innovate on top of it as the technology comes along to make you able to go faster and better uh, and safer. Um, you need to be able to do those things. But if you don't have the infrastructure built, you can't leverage the novel technology that you know and I know is coming every single day. And this is kind and of... In that, rep- yeah. in that report in 2015, um, two things strike me. One is that we put in the very beginning a sort of the notion of a, of a hypothetical a, a congressional oversight committee. And, uh, and what we said is don't have the, don't have the hearings 
after the event right. to try to understand why so many people died. Have the hearings before the event so you can make sure that the country's ready. That was one thing. Yep. And the second thing is we, one of the recommendations was that that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, uh, CMS, CMMS, should um, reimburse hospitals for acquiring the ventilators and the personal protection equipment and, and the masks and the gloves and everything else that they might need so that they could be stockpiled at special hospitals around the country so we, we would be ready for this. And unfortunately, that wasn't happening. We've seen the results. I guess if there's any good thing at all is, well, now we will develop a surplus, at least of ventilators. Yeah. And um, the next time this comes around, which it will, um, we'll at least have those. Exactly. I think that's, I think they're learning all kinds of things about what kinds of personal protective equipment might need more redundancies than we've had before and having things more forward deployed, which was always a recommendation of the Bipartisan Commission. We've learned that lesson too, right? You you need to have things closer to where they're going to get used and and maybe more of them. Um, uh, And everything that I think we're also learning, you have to have everything that goes with them. So right now, um, it, it's, putting someone on a ventilator is a multi-staff personnel activity requiring all the PPE that goes with it, plus a multi-drug activity. They need to be on different kinds of sedation and all these different things. So you, you think you need, we need to think of these things holistically, right? It's not just the machine. You have to think about everything that goes with the machine. The machine doesn't do it itself. Um, and I don't think we've ever thought about all the pieces that make using any technology successful. And that's the other thing we're going to be hearing and talking about at those hearings you're talking about is how, what, what, what didn't we think about in order to make the products we had work well when they actually needed to be deployed. Um, and and these, this will be a subject of a lot of conversation because it's really slowed things down in terms of response and recovery. So along comes coronavirus, and Bio decides, uh, I guess in February, we, uh, we need to, because Bio is the only organization in the world that has a membership like we do of, of, of something like 800 um, health-related drug, and develop, drug development companies, we send a note to all of them saying, asking, uh, are you doing work that could be um, pertinent to the coronavirus? Are you doing? Um, are you doing working on vaccines? Are you working on therapeutics that that uh, could be useful? Um, and 50 of our companies said yes, and so we initiated the Bio Coronavirus Collaboration Initiative, um, which you have been at the center and essentially the the helms woman at that. Um, so why don't you tell us, tell everybody, I mean, exactly what we've done and, to, and bring these these companies together and and the summit and uh, and go on from there. Okay, super. Well, actually, yeah, I think that we realized we had the opportunity to really get the companies together. It was amazing to me how many companies raised their hand even three weeks ago. And what we're seeing now as we continue to work to get companies together is probably double that number of companies are now raising their hand as they had the chance to really look at their 
what they had in-house or what technology they could bring to bear and started to decide that there was something they could actually do that would be useful. So we had the two-day summit. And I think what was great was the first half of it, the first quarter was actually just hearing from the U.S. government, hearing, of course, from you and and uh, our bio board lead, Dr. George Skango said, Veer, um, and, and really just saying, we're coming together this is all about collaboration. Uh, then we heard from Dr. Burks within the vice president's office, who's a smart lady who cares about solving this problem, and Dr. Robert Cadlick, who's the ASPR. And then really- Tell us what the ASPR is. So he's the assistant secretary for preparedness and response, who reports directly to the secretary of uh, HHS, uh, Mr. Azar. So um, Dr. Cadlick uh, at ASPR and others really trying to solve this issue. And ASPR is really where- BARDA sits, where the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority sits, and they are one of the key partners working with industry to make products uh, to help fight COVID and other bio threats. So we had, after that, some really great presentations by the federal agencies that are you know, assessing the data, like CDC, partnering with industry, like the NIH, like BARDA, like the Department of Defense. We heard from the FDA. Um, really, we heard from CEPI, an NGO that's funding research. CEPI yes, stands so for? Yes, so that's the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, based in London. You know, you just did like 17 acronyms. I know, now. it's awful. <laughs> this is our universe. Sorry. It's a, DC, it's a DC problem, for sure. So I figure people know NIH and the, the Department of Defense, um, and all these organizations are are funding different research at different times. So we wanted the companies to be able to hear, here's what, pe- what the organizations who are funding or who are going to be your partners are doing. And then we broke the companies out into three different breakout groups, and we had a, f- a targeted focused two-hour session just on therapeutics where the companies and some academics and some government folks could actually just talk about what they're seeing as the data they need, the issues they're having, how can they partner together, uh, what are the different bottlenecks that companies were seeing as they hurried to try to do research in the space. And of course, therapeutics are are the drugs that will treat the, the symptoms of the disease. Exactly. A therapeutic could cure it, but, but we'll get into the vaccines uh, later. But the, and the, and the, the whole point of this exercise is that whereas ordinarily it's it's understandably typical for companies to be kind of doing their own thing and keeping some of their projects uh, under the radar screen because because they are um, you know they face competition. Here we're saying, look, this is too critical, too many lives at stake. Let's all you know be transparent, tell each other what we're doing, share data. Uh, you need if I'm a small company and I think maybe I can develop a therapeutic or a vaccine, but I don't have the capacity to manufacture it. Who can help me manufacture it? Uh, and it's been an extraordinary um, experience and one in which uh, I've been so uh, um, pleased to see that the companies are basically taking the position, look, we, we might lose money, we might break even, we might make money, but that's not the point. The point is we've got to move fast. We've got to do, do this uh, together because there's obviously just so many lives at stake. I mean, just one example of that. So one of the academic institutions on the, uh, that got on the call heard some people saying, you know, I'm trying to figure out where the right animal model is, you know, the, you know, the mouse model that I can test this in before I go into humans. Or I'm trying to figure out how to test this, uh, you know, its activity against different coronaviruses and see. And companies on the phone said, hey, I have a mouse model you can use, you know, call me and, and we can work together. Right? But people started collaborating 
collaborating right away. They really heard people. They offered up their service. Uh, companies filled out our survey and said, I'm willing to talk to people about manufacturing capacity if they're trying to make their clinical trial lots. So so I agree. I think there were a lot of examples, Jim, where people did exactly what you said. They, they Maybe they weren't working on a product themselves, but they had either expertise or they had excess capacity within their manufacturing facility to work with another company to help them do this. And I'll say we started to see companies in the press, we started to see companies making very rapid deals. You know, usually these kind of deals take a long time to put together, but in part because companies were trying to go quickly and demonstrate and get to the clinic as soon as they could, people really reached out to people they knew and started talking about how can I get your help in making the clinical trial lots I need for my my uh, my antiviral or my vaccine. Um, and it's, instead of bringing in armies of, of lawyers for ex- months exactly. after month, they're basically doing a virtual handshake and saying, let's get this done. And, and I think we saw that happen really fast. And what we wanted to do at Bio over time was to facilitate that exchange. We actually built a coronavirus landing page on our website that could have a bunch of different things. So one, it has a place where we could capture all the different funding opportunities that were out there. So we put those there. As we saw them come in, we dropped them there so people could find quickly how to apply to BARDA, how to apply to the National Institutes of Health, et cetera. Then we dropped on there things for people to actually created a space, the the coronavirus hub, where people could actually raise their hand and say, hey, I need a place to test my antiviral against corona and see if it works, or I need a place to do X. And companies could, in essence, Craigslist matchmake within the hub because you needed a place to put companies together. Um, And we've been working to continuously improve the hub so people can actually build an account. They can do a description of what kind of technology or asset they have or what kind of capacity they have and actually start to meet and greet with other companies as companies move forward from early stage research to see if their product works to the needs for more complex um, complex partnerships for testing, for clinical trial lots, for manufacturing scale-up, et cetera. So the coronavirus hub has begun our place to do that. And, and we've got more than a thousand um, organizations have put accounts in and are starting to find each other through the hub. Um, That's really extraordinary, thousands. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think it's growing. As we keep pushing companies to it as they come to us and say, where can I meet people? We've been making sure companies know to set up an account there. And we've been trying to make sure we look and see if a great service is being offered, that we're pushing it out to our members and others so that they see it. Um, because it's hard to run a business all day and then click on the web all day too. So we know that a lot of our members are doing a lot of different work at the same time. Um, I think lastly, we also wanted to make sure that we serve a lot of customers and we wanted to make sure their businesses, they had what they needed to keep their businesses up and running. And so we built a continuity page as well, where people could go and find you know, ideas of pandemic plans, business continuity plans for their business, the latest policies on travel, the latest policies on stay at home, um, the the latest rules on on essential personnel who could go to work or not go to work. Um, And it was really important just to give companies, particularly CEOs and, and human resource advocates and so on, a place to go 
where they could find the latest information from the CDC and others to make good decisions about their business planning and their business continuity themselves. A lot of our companies are small, and unless they're sitting in Hurricane Alley, they might not actually have a plan for dealing with a a pandemic in our country. It's kind of an unusual situation that happens. So we wanted to make sure we were serving people at multiple levels, not just those working on COVID-19, but those who are working on lots of different things and need to keep their business and their employees safe and, and afloat. Um, and, and that's really important to us, too. So we have some viruses that have plagued us for decades, like HIV, uh, herpes, flu. Uh, for which we and for, for which we still don't have um, vaccines. Uh, and we have vaccines that have taken 10 to 15 years to develop. So. Obviously, the the whole world is relying upon the biotechnology sector to figure out how to develop vaccines uh, much more quickly than has ever been done before. What are your what are your are you optimistic we're going to be able to succeed at that? I am actually. I think that this is this is the time. Uh, companies have been actually working on really interesting, innovative technologies. Uh, for for some for decades. And I think what's good is you're seeing a lot of different shots on goal. And and you need that because, as you know better than anybody, everything's not going to work. I mean, what do we talk about, right? It's like one in 10 products kind of get through. So so knowing that you're going to have failure somewhere along the way, you need to have a lot of different technologies brought to bear. I'll say what's great about the new technologies for vaccines is they can go faster than any technologies we've had in the past because They leverage the genetic sequence information and literally within three weeks of the Chinese making the genetic sequence data available, literally literally the unraveling the DNA and saying this is what this particular virus looks like in code, um, companies were able to start developing experimental vaccines and see whether they worked in animals before they went into human trials. And that's what allowed some of the revolutionary biotechnology companies you're hearing about, Moderna, Innovio, Novavax, others, to go so fast. Um, Sanofi and and, and J&J, they had a really great... um, a really great system for making vaccines that really is not based on growing the virus up from scratch, but leveraging the genetic data instead, they could plug that into there. They could start to make a candidate vaccine and start to see whether it worked. And that's why really only five months, not even four or five months from when we knew about this thing, we're starting to see vaccines go into the first human trials. And that's amazing. It is amazing. And, you know, it just occurred to me, if this very same vaccine, which was probably, if we think it was in, from a bat, it was probably in bats for hundreds of years, <laughs> for all we know, had this virus become a, a pandemic like this, even 20 years ago, oh. it would have been a whole oh, different ballgame. Oh, we'd be in that, deep we, trouble. Yeah. <laughs> deep yeah, trouble. I mean, it would, be, it would be millions and millions and millions of deaths, I have no doubt, because... Uh, we have no defense against it without until we get the, um, the vaccines and the ability to, to uh, where the biotechnology industry was 20 years ago um, is, you know, so, so far distant from where we are right now. Absolutely. And um, uh, and hopefully um, people will, will come to have a, a different uh, perspective on our industry, uh, realizing that in this incredible hour of need, we're doing, we're coming to the rescue, which is what we do every day on all kinds of diseases. Absolutely. Um, but but here it's uh, obviously uh, quite dire situation 
and uh, and very visible. Well, Phyllis, thanks for your leadership on this. I know that um, you're probably getting about 14 minutes of sleep a day, <laughs> but um, the uh, check is in the mail. Absolutely, <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. This this is right. this is a great opportunity for our industry to show how much we can do to save lives and 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 make us all safer, not just for this pandemic, but any that come, you know, what we're going to learn now, we're going to apply, as you know, to the next one. And we're going to see more of these. So the more ready we can be, the more we can learn, the more we invest in biotechnology, the faster we'll be able to save lives for the next one too. All right, Phyllis, uh, stay safe. You we need you. You too. Thank you so much. I've always been convinced that if Americans actually met the entrepreneurs who run biopharma companies, and the scientists who work in our labs, our industry would be the most popular in the land instead of the least understood. So if you've learned something today about vaccines or how biotech is working to keep families safe, please share a link to the I Am Biopod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of heroes in lab coats, please visit iambio.org. In our next episode, you'll hear another story turn upside down the notion that drug companies put profits before patients. Most biotech companies are actually pre-revenue, meaning they haven't yet earned their first dollar of profit. Biotechs are entering into virtual handshake deals to immediately get started on research partnerships to develop new medicines for COVID-19. Saving lives comes first. The lawyers can figure out the details later. One such partnership involves a company called Alnyla, which has pioneered a breakthrough in gene silencing that's being studied as a potentially potent weapon to fight messenger RNA viruses. It's truly fascinating stuff. Learn all about it on Thursday's episode of I Am Bio.